was that for a spin? Now please stay seated until your Triceratops comes to a complete stop. My name is Morris Mulch. I'm apparently not cool enough to play in the band or have a girlfriend. Ladies and gentlemen, please collect your belongings, watch your head and step, and take small children by the hand. We hope you enjoy your day at the Magic Kingdom. W Radio, your information station. Hello, my friend, and welcome to the WW Radio Show, your Walt Disney World information station. I am your host, Lou Mangello, and this is show number 539. And I'm here not only to help you have the best vacation experience when you go to the Disney parks, but I also want to bring you a little bit of that Disney magic wherever you are, not just with the podcast, but with my videos, live broadcasts on Facebook every Wednesday night, books, audio tours, special events, and more. You can find everything over at www.radio.com. In 1964, Walt Disney, along with a remarkable team of songwriters, actors, directors, artists, designers, and so many others on screen and behind the scenes, created and shared a film that was, and remains, practically perfect in every way. And Mary Poppins Returns is a sequel to the original timeless classic that comes at just the right time. This week, I sit down for one-on-one interviews with songwriters Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman and director Rob Marshall. We'll discuss timing, history, legacy, characters, cast, music, message, and more. And as a special bonus, I'll share a conversation between the Mary Poppins Returns songwriters and Disney legend and my friend Richard M. Sherman as they discuss the challenges of writing the score for the sequel, Richard's songwriting process with his brother, and thoughts on Mark and Scott's favorite songs from Mary Poppins Returns, Where the Lost Things Go. I'll then have the answer to our last Walt Disney World trivia question of the week, and I'll pose a new challenge for your chance to win a very special Mary Poppins Returns prize package. Then stay tuned to the end of the show. I'll have more information about our next WW Radio Meet of the Month over Marathon Weekend in January, your voicemails, some other announcements, and more. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's episode of the WW Radio Show. ago, I was invited to California by the Disney Studios to screen Mary Poppins Returns before it opens in theaters on December 19th. And during that time, I not only saw the film and attended the press conference, but I had the opportunity and thrill to sit down with some of the talents who helped make this film possible. I want to share my full review of the film, but also engage you in a discussion about it. So I'm going to save my thoughts until we can do a live discussion after you've had a chance to see it. So tune in Wednesday, December 26th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern for our regular live video broadcast where you can call in and discuss in the chat with your own comments and review at www.radiolive.com. Again, we'll discuss Mary Poppins Returns and I'll share my full review on Wednesday, December 26th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern at www.radiolive.com, which will take you right to our WW Radio Box People group on Facebook. This week, however, we'll start off with a conversation with the men that brought the music of Mary Poppins Returns to life. 
Due in part to the marriage of sound to film in the late 1920s, the time from the 30s to the early 50s featured the genre of big Hollywood musicals prominently on the big screen. And today, musicals on film are more rare than common, and ones on the scale of Mary Poppins Returns haven't been seen or heard in years. And films like the original Mary Poppins or even The Sound of Music or Chitty Chitty Bang Bang were families could go and enjoy the experience together, have all but disappeared from the silver screen. But thanks to producer Mark Platt and director Rob Marshall, the grand scope and scale of these bygone films and stories has returned, much like the titular character in Mary Poppins Returns. And these stories and songs come to life thanks to the work and talents of Tony Award and Grammy winner Mark Shaman, you may know from such plays as Hairspray and South Park, and Tony winner and three-time Emmy nominee Scott Whitman, also from Hairspray and from Smash. And they aren't just big fans of the genre and huge fans of Richard Sherman and Robert Sherman from their first film, by the way. But for them both, this project was a literal dream come true. I had the opportunity to sit down with them one-on-one or one-on-two in Hollywood after being invited to screen the film. And it was an absolute joy to have a conversation and share the stories of these two incredibly passionate talents. So I hope you enjoy my interview with Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman. Mark and Scott, you both worked on so many um, revered productions and projects on, on Broadway and TV and movies. And some not revered. <laughs> <laughs> what was your reaction when you are approached about creating a, a music for a sequel for a legendary film like Mary Poppins? Well, first there was the fear of not getting it, <laughs> and then there was the fear when we got it. So um, it was, you know, you start out, you know, um, uh, like we have to have this job, we have to have this job, and then we got it, and then we said, oh my God, how are we going to write this? How are we going to write this? So that was the sequence. <laughs> I mean, there were a few weeks when we had done all the begging we could to get the job and putting forth all the reasons why we should do it where I truly would sit at home in a dark room thinking, if we don't get it, where can I move to, like, Bora Bora? Can I, should I move to Pro... Like, where in the world will there be no movie posters? And, you know, a hut somewhere in Tanzania? I, I truly was trying to figure out how I could live the rest of my life if we didn't get to do it. And then Rob Marshall, in his very theatrical way, called up and said, um, which Sherman brother would you like to be? So that was how he found <laughs> and it. And what was your answer? Uh, well, I, I, <laughs> what? I said the living one. but <laughs> I, had a, I knew that's what you were thinking. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, let's talk about the 800-pound Sherman elephant in the yes. room because when you, you think of Mary Poppins, I know for Sherman me that's... Tank. The Sherman Tank. Yeah. But like the cast and, and the script of the original, the, the, the music was practically perfect. Yeah. So it is perfect. It's not it is, practically, yeah. yeah. I, I, I yeah. think Mary Poppins is, is the perfect film. Yeah. So when you are approached that and you pick your job off the floor that you, that you actually do get it, how much in your, in your mind immediately do you 
try it and follow in the Sherman style versus making it your own and unique and obviously tailored to a, a more modern audience? Well, just, well, we wanted it to live in the same world. We they had to live. They had to as, as Lynn. I, I'm stealing from Lynn here. He, he said that, that this movie needed to rhyme with the first one. And that was the, 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 it was to honor the first one. It was never to say, oh my God, let's co- you know, copy or try to, you know, oh, we'll do it better. It was our love letter to the first movie. Yeah, it, which is, it has to be a tough balance, too, trying to honor that one and touch, have touch points to it, but make it unique. Yeah. Well, that's, I think, why Rob chose this. Part of the reason was knowing. And, and in, in a youth culture world, here was a moment where actually our uh, ripened, our fine, you know, like a fine Aged. wine. Aged, you were yeah. trying to ripen. Yeah, well, what, what's, what's the nice word for it? Yeah, our maturity, Mature. our maturity was actually a plus here, where he knew he wanted people whose the movie was in their blood. And, and it, you know, it had been in our blood since we were toddlers. And that was a plus here. And that the style of the first film would be within us. And even in things that we've written in our own life, you could tell that we were from a certain school of songwriting that fit this. And so it was, you know, I don't think we ever wrote a song and went, oh, God, does that sound too much like? I mean, if only, (laughs) if only we write a song that sounds too much like A Spoonful of Sugar or Feed the Birds. But we knew this was the neighborhood we're living in. And we need to make our house fit into the street and be beautiful and unique in its way and be something that people would appreciate on its own and yet fit into what already existed. It's, I, I, I liken it to a, a religion almost, like how a new preacher or a new rabbi will think of new ways to, uh, to appeal to a new generation and yet what, what the religion is about and the traditions of it are not going to change. And so we just entered the church or synagogue, <laughs> what have you. We're acolytes. We're mere acolytes. <laughs> we pray. We pray. Well, so, so as the new rabbi, as the new priest, do you reach back and, and reach out to Richard and look for input or run songs by him or at least just have some yes. sort of conversation? Richard was part of the process. He definitely was. And then, um, and then he... He would. He, he read everything. He heard everything, and um, then when he finally saw the completed film, he sent us this a really beautiful video message that was all about. Um, he, he in a way he had felt that we had honored him and, and that the baton had been passed in some way. And and then last week we we got to spend the whole afternoon with him and got to ask him all those questions that we've been dying to ask since we were children. So. <laughs> And he's he is um, he's the nicest, most humble person in, in the world. Yeah, too. yeah. No, he's just lovely. It was a really, really special afternoon. So you 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 overcome the you know shock that that you've gotten. It. Tell me about the the process and starting to create the songs and, and working with the screenwriter. Okay. Well, we spent we spent um, we got together with Rob and John, his p- partner, and David McGee, the screenwriter. We would meet in a hotel for we met in a hotel for about four months, once or twice a week, and it was a very I say it's the most creative time I've ever had in a hotel. But it, we we did spend those times hammering out the going through the books and and fashioning this piece that we were about to now go 
wall off and write. We had nothing was written. We weren't writing yet. And so we got to really all get on the same page because if we weren't, that would have been a disaster. And it was a very nice chemistry between all of us. We all listened. People listened to each other and, and said, what if it, what if? We play what if? What if this? What if that? What if this? What if this song is here? And what if they go here? And so, and then we had adult, it was primarily living in the world of P.L. Travers because she had eight other books. That, and, that, and so that's where all those, that came from. You, you use the word chemistry, which is something that came to mind last night when we screened the film. There was this incredible chemistry and this sort of perfect storm in the original. And I sort of felt, again, here, and part of that chemistry that sometimes people don't think about until they, you know, I was listening as much as I, w- I was watching, but like the original, again, there was some of the songs had that wonderful sort of rapid-fire type wordplay, but there was also this this embedded, wonderful orchestral sound that you don't hear a lot in that's movies the, anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's another reason why it was a complete fantasy, for not only for myself, but for my orchestrators who I've worked with over the years, and you know, we would talk about the kind of movies we wished existed still because it's what we grew up learning from, listening to. But there aren't a lot of opportunities. Sometimes on a movie there might be like some kind of pastiche moment that like you get to exercise it, but it's usually done with quotations around it, some irony about it. And so for, for me and the orchestrators and, and the engineers and the musicians, the 80, 90-piece orchestra, we were all living this fantasy where we were getting to kind of write, orchestrate, and play the kind of movie music you, you thought of, of why you got into it, was that somehow the world would somehow get back turn, to turtle. it. <laughs> so here we were. We couldn't believe it. It had happened to us and that we all got to jump on this train and live out this fantasy. So it's a it's a dream job, and and you know I think many are going to argue that it's a dream cast. Um, you knew Lin Manuel was going to be in relatively early, I assume, yes, in yes. in the process. Did you craft some of the songs to take advantage of his musical styles and abilities? Yeah, we had it. That was a tightrope of wanting to match him, but also not make it seem like, oh, listen to them trying so hard to anachronistically try to, you know do a, a modern rap song or something. And and we had already written the first song, Lovely London Sky, before Lynn had been cast. And so then that put the first song under a new spotlight of like, well, is this the right song for Lynn to sing first in the movie? And we ended up writing many other songs, thinking, oh, we had to fashion something more Lynn manuel about it. But the truth is he has that... And we ended up with the first song we wrote after writing five songs, including that one, we ended up with the first one because that showed another side of him. And that is what is special about the movie is that he gets to show it's not, it's not that he's a one-trick pony. Lord knows he's shown that he's an entire he's, – he's a stable of, of well, well-built horses. But, you know, that he has other colors. And it was nice to let him give the, have the opportunity to show that. And then eventually when we get to the music hall, English music hall kind of numbers – then, then we had the perfect non-anachronistic 
uh, ability, non-anachronistic. Yeah, is that, yes, is that sort of redundant? Yeah. So um, we were lucky there that there was a style of music of the time that perfectly matched that kind of his skills. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, and the wide range and breadth of what those skills are. But but interestingly, when he came on, he did not want any music or, or scoring responsibilities, right? Which I think speaks volumes about his trust in you and, and yeah. I think you're trusting I mean, I, we've, we've known each other because we're all from the same 20 blocks of New York of Broadway. <laughs> but, but he, um, yeah, I mean, I think he was looking forward to that after that. I mean, Hamilton was a lot, obviously, and, and years of his life went into creating that. And I think he felt like this was a chance for him to to explore another side, and he didn't want to write. He that wasn't what it was he signed. Really kind of a vacation from that responsibility. responsibility yeah. And yes, but you're right. the The fact that the preeminent writer of musical theater now, uh, of we our, were of writing for <laughs> that, that he trusted us. It's a huge compliment. It, yeah. And did you um, did you do anything else to play to the strengths of some of so you know like for an Emily Blunt? Do you do you write? For her and, and where her talents and strengths lie. Well, she can, she was she was in New York making the girl from the, the tra- girl on a train was that the girl, girl on the train girl on the train at the time and and so um, we got to meet with her like once a week she when she would come over and and we got to sort of try things out on her so yeah and she and they she's give all, her the opportunity to start getting her singing back because it's a muscle. And so she had done it on Into the Woods, and then it had been two years or more, yeah. maybe, since she had done that. So she would come over and strengthen the muscle and started getting back to a voice teacher. And so as we were writing songs, we found, oh, we can oh, expand the range. The were getting higher. Because <laughs> when they first came over, it was like, oh, oh do you? She was better. playing a blackout yeah. drunk. So. <laughs> and, but the truth is she could do anything she ever put yeah. her mind to. Yeah. There's nothing she, I, I, she could do anything. So when talking about, you know, all these dreams, what what was it like or what were the challenges like writing for legends like an Angela Lansbury and, you know, obviously a Dick Van Dyke? Yeah, well, that was magic. I, I mean, we were working in, in New York at the time, so we were we only did the uh, they only recorded the things for, with us by Skype. So, um, but but when I saw the movie cut together, a rough cut of it the first time, and when Dick obviously starts singing our song, I mean, really, I was a kid again. So I, I don't know why that's a long time in the past. <laughs> for both, yeah, Dick Van Dyke and Angela Lansbury. I mean, he's heard me say it a lot now, but it is the only time in my life that I'm totally speechless, which is not very good for a print interview, but there, is, there are no words to describe hearing those legendary performers singing your music and your lyrics. And, and obviously Meryl Streep as well. Yeah. I mean, that was to write for her was great, great fun because we got to explore, uh, do this. Um, there was a period of music then that was called Gypsy Swing that was a very popular kind of jazzy thing, and it seemed to fit that character perfectly. So once um, she heard that song, is what she, signed, so she said, I'm in. So. You know, I, I think part of the reason why, I know for me personally, that I love Mary Poppins, the original, so much is because of the way it makes me feel. You know, I come up with a certain feeling. And this film feels like classic Disney, I think due in large part not to the story and the, the touches to animation, but the music. How do you sort of make sure and how do you write to sort of make it an emotional experience for the viewer? 
Well, I I think that it's in the story, isn't it? I mean, um, the story of a story is about loss, but not just personal loss. It's about loss that we feel that we've all come so far from that child that loved the first Mary Poppins, and how do we find that person again? You know, and that's a very complicated route in life to find that joy within you and I think that's what the movie does at the end of it I think I see grown men cry so that's it <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah. right because there, there are a lot of songs I mean you know the, the place where things will go and triple and F they are about loss and I think they, those are topics that could be very deep for kids and adults in terms of, of, of losing a parent and I think for kids especially it's, it's done in a way that is understandable and while sad I, I didn't find it depressing. Yeah. It's not yeah. maudlin, but that's from the book. I mean, she we that's a story from the book. She took the in one of the books she takes Mary's uncle is the man in the moon, of course. And so she takes the children to the moon and and he explains what they ask what's what's on the other side, the dark side of the moon, not Pink Floyd's dark side, <laughs> but the other side of the moon and that it's uh, he's that's where things are lost where we where we, when things that we lose we can't find anymore. They're all over there. So that seemed like a perfect metaphor to, for uh, uh, for Mary to teach the children or to, uh, to tap into what they what they were feeling and because it's in language that they can understand when she sings the dish ran, uh, the, my that spoon and the dish and my spoon are in there so it's all that was about metaphors for that so. and I think the big eureka moment was when maybe our fourth attempt to write Mary Poppins first song when we wrote the lyrics and the second melody I wrote, which I was recently going through my laptop of all the things we wrote, that second melody that's now in the... Some people like to splash and play. Can you imagine that? This magic thing happened where when, it's, when you sing it upbeat, it has a perfect, crisp, British, Emily Blunt, Mary Poppins style. But then when you slow it down... And it became the main theme to Mary Poppins Returns. It has a melancholy. It has a, you know, this looking back quality. A yearning, yeah. 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 So when the orchestra plays it in, in, at a different tempo with slightly, slightly different chords, it has like this double life. And, and it's when we wrote that song and I played it in that other way. That was, that was really, uh, oh, Something Enough that, so that Rob had it recorded before they started filming. So the orchestra recorded that, and he would play that on the set to endlessly. Endlessly, <laughs> and, and, but for for the especially for, it was when you have children in a movie, you have to sort of establish the mood, I guess. And so that was that became sort of a, a feeling in the, in the in the first half of the movie, at least. As you were saying that, I thought of a spoonful of sugar. That same thing, how it's performed and played, it can be a very up tempo thing. And then when it's slowed down, it has a very, very different feel yeah. to it. Um, on the other side of the coin, the songs like Trip a Little Light Fantastic is like that golden age of Hollywood, grand production number and, and nods to things like Step in Time. Can you talk about writing that song and the process of bringing the song to life on screen in such a grand way? Well, he has a good story about how the The first song we wrote for that spot was called Trip the Light Fantastic. We knew their lamp lighters, so the, trip the light, fantastic. Oh, that's old. And we knew that they were they, have, they were lost in the story yeah. physically. So the first so. song we wrote was about how the lamp lighters knew how to get around 
when they're going to light the lamps in the dark, that they could get around London just from the sounds. And we wrote a whole song about the sounds of, mm-hmm. at the docks and the sounds of the pubs and the sounds in the park. And then we wrote this whole song, and, then, and it was a good song, and then not, neither of us could probably remember it yeah. at all right now. But it was like, mm, yeah. And then we thought, well, why did we write a song about the dark? The whole point of the movie is about follow the light and their lamp lighters. So, so we said, let's take another pass at this and make it more about following the light, not following the sounds. And, and still, we're still always trying to think, what makes it a little catchier? What makes it a little, what's that little hook? And out of a, the most corniest movie of songwriter that you could imagine, but this is absolute truth, I was on the city bike in New York on the way to meet Scott at Rob and John's apartment to talk about where we were at. And I was thinking about, what, how can we rewrite that song? And I'm going, trip the light fantastic. And there were the bicycle spokes. And I was like, trip a little, trip a, trip a little light fantastic. Trip a little. And just putting that a little, trip a little. Instead of trip the light fantastic, just sort of sits there. But trip a little light, just, just like those spokes in the bicycle, which they're all riding and if you saw that in a movie, you go, that is the corniest bullshit I ever saw. <laughs> but it is absolutely true. And thank you for that. It's, I'm grinning ear to ear because it's a fascinating insight into, for us, into how the, the, the process works and how seeing something, hearing something, the light versus the dark, something that you see on your way to work changes the, the entire composition of a song. Well, we were talking about that with Richard Sherman the other day, and he says that all, it, it, nothing stop, uh, starts without the idea. Yeah. I mean, he and, heard us say that, and he was like, that's it, you, you got it, that's it, I've always said that. You know? But that the idea is everything, and, and, and the writing, to, then, then the writing sort I mean, of falls. You sit into for days brain. until you get what? Exactly, is the idea. What is it we're fully trying to say here in the in the really big picture? And then once you unlock that, then we find ourselves with too many verses, and they say, "Guys, we're going to have to cut that song down a little. It's a little long, you know." But and you go and you remember, oh my God, four days ago we were staring at each other. The song, the song that we sing to each other is paralyzed with fear. Paralyzed with we couldn't imagine. It, it, it's a fascinating insight in, into the process because I sit there watching the film and I'm like, how do these men come up with such beautiful things that just speak to us on, on such an emotional level? Like, I can't imagine, you know, what that process is like and then to sort of hear how it comes together is, is amazing. It's, it's just what we were lucky enough to get to do in life and be born to do. And you, I, speaking for myself... Look, I have to wear shoes with a zipper because I couldn't even tie my shoe if you asked me. I cannot do anything else but what I'm blessed. All the, all the hashtags, hashtag blessed, hashtag grateful. You know, I just was lucky enough to fall into a world where I, I could do it. And to get to do it with my best, best pal, my best friend, my soulmate, is to only makes it ever more delicious. And do you think, again, talking about a film, you know, in the Disney world, in the Mary Poppins world, do you stop and think about legacy and, and no. how this no. will be? No. no, you never you can't, you can't think, think about, about that. that. I mean, when we wrote The Place Where Lost Things Go, I was like, this title, this sounds like a Disney song. Oh, right? no, we had another one. We wrote a whole song. There was a, the animated sequence was actually longer in the original script. And in one of the books, Mary... 
uh, on Mary's birthday. If her birthday is on a full moon. If her birthday is on a full moon on a Tuesday, it's all that kind. She, they, they, she takes the kids to the zoo, and on that day, in honor of Mary's birthday, the humans are in the cages and the animals are walking around. So it's anthropomorphic in a way. And so we wrote a whole song, Anthropomorphic Zoo, and I said, oh, my God, this is, that's the only time I've allowed myself to ever think, this is going to be in that parade <laughs> in Disney World. <laughs> Well, because no. I, I think those, I think so many of the songs God. follow. <laughs> well, they they follow. I, I think what what Richard said to me years ago was they need to be simple and singable. And as yeah. I'm listening to these songs, like I could hear my kids latching right. onto them right. and singing them, which is what the the original had to. And yet there are yet there on uh, they uh, hopefully they work on every level. Like an adult can appreciate the the, the, the wit at least. And a lot of people last night said the same thing. I came out of the film, and I think that it's a huge testament to you. They walked out of the film and started down downloading the soundtrack, oh, you know, yeah. um, because they want to continue to take that with them. What I can't wait to see is how kids react to the movie, because as of up to we now, we so much have it. And also, I see it as an adult, and the things that move me about it, and the, the great, when you work on a great movie, you forget that you were part of it. You forget you wrote something. People are singing something you wrote, and you, you forget that. You're just wrapped up in it. And the emotions that it brings up as an adult I don't think anyone expected it to be as an emotional experience. So I, I'm, I imagine kids are going, why, why are all the adults crying? Why is Grandma crying? Why did you make Grandma cry? But I can't wait to see how the kids are just enjoying it as a kid should. And it's just their Mary Poppins. And I also can't wait to see how they react to when those kids go off the edge of the bowl in the animation. That's scary. And as we were working, I was like, and they're writing the music for it, like, edge of the bowl! And that... And that Gloriously scary imagery of them flying in limbo, and the music I got to write is weird. It's like like a dying monster, and you like. I can't wait to. See. I want to. I want to stand up front. I, I thought this. My kids, you know, I grew up on Mary Poppins. Uh, I have a tough time getting the word 15 out of my mouth when I talk about my daughter. My, my daughter's 15. My, my son is 13. But they grew up loving Mary Poppins as much as much as I did. When I take them. I'm going to be watching them, especially in scenes like in the attic. I'm going to be watching their reactions probably more than I would be paying attention because I want to see how it resonates with them. And it would be a blessing to think, because I was thinking, I was a kid, I was a four-year-old. We talked about that. Whether I I mean, when I first started listening, I was four. I kept listening for many years. But strangely enough, my favorite part always was, a man has dreams of walking with giants this beautiful reprise slowed down where a man is expressing these most adult emotions of this is what I meant to do with my life and what has happened and and then how Bert how they so beautifully wrote for Bert to kind of say this is what you're doing wrong and if you just change your point of view it's such an adult moment and the music is so I think I think kids and and to your credit and I think kids are going to walk away feeling the same way about songs and scenes from this film the way you and you and I felt about Mary Poppins. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Hashtag blessed. Yeah. Look, you you've both said what an incredible experience this is for you. If you had to sort of just summarize what what working on this film has meant to you 
and, and what you want people I, to take away from it. Well, I, I'll just say, I mean, in a classic Disney fashion, it's, a, a, you know, a dream is a wish your heart makes. I mean, I, I'm still, you know, be only because only recently have we been getting reactions because we've been living in a little bubble of we know what it what what it felt like to see it. And, and only recently have friends of ours seen it. And I mean, I, I think I, I, we went to a screening and Nathan Lane came up to me in tears, if you could imagine <laughs> such a thing. So um, I, I know that it has, it taps into something in people the way it did in writing it. So I'm, I'm grateful. That's what I have. What he said, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you both for not just sharing your time, but, but sharing oh, your gift. Um, the, the film is beautiful on many levels, due in large part of, of the magic touch that you added to it. So on behalf of me and who I know my family um, who are going to enjoy as much as I did, thank you both so much. Mary Poppins Returns director Rob Marshall is no stranger on how to construct a musical, although it's always been a dream of his to conceive an original musical specifically for film. And the Oscar-nominated, from Chicago, an Emmy and DGA award-winning director, began his career on the Broadway stage as both choreographer and director, and he's also been responsible for the screen adaptations of Chicago, Nine, and Disney's Into the Woods. And Rob not only understands the world of film and the world of broader musicals in a very unique and direct way, but he also has a personal connection to the original Mary Poppins. And being asked to direct Mary Poppins Returns was literally a long-time dream come true. I had a chance to sit down with Rob and speak to him about the cast, characters, music, timing, theme, and why this is the right movie at just the right time. Enjoy. So, Rob, you have a, a profound uh, personal connection to the original film and the characters that, that goes back to your childhood. Um, I think I read this as your, your first film. Do you remember sort of how Mary Poppins made you feel as a kid? You know, I was four years old, but I, I have a very strong memory of it. Um, not in specifics, but in sort of the general feeling of seeing a film with such magic and fantasy and music and dance and animation I mean it sort of just opens your mind up opened my mind up to the possibilities of film and I mean I just I remember carrying it with me is a feeling uh, of, of such warmth and joy and um, I mean what, a, what a, an amazing way to experience movies for the first time yeah, starting off with a film that, you know, truly, pardon the pun, is, is practically perfect. <laughs> Sets the bar very, very high. But you, um, 2014, you just finished Disney's Into the Woods, and they come to you talking about a Mary Poppins sequel. Yes. What's sort of the first... Now, you, I, I have to assume there's a lot of giddiness. You know, the little four-year-old Rob comes out, but what's yeah. that first reaction? It was a combination of so many things when they first spoke to me about this. Of course, the overriding one was completely daunted by the whole thing because I thought, well, how do you do that? At the same time, it was thrilling, um, especially like you just referenced the little boy inside me thinking, okay, can you believe that this is a possibility for me? Um, Having meant so much to me, the film, not only as a four-year-old, but throughout my life. Um, So I guess the thing that that one <laughs> overall was 
if someone's going to do it, I want to be the one to do it. I honestly felt that. I want to be that one who takes on that challenge because I had and have such respect for the first film. Um, I love it so much. It's so deep inside me. And I knew I'd be able to protect the film in a way and protect this film in terms of the spirit of the first film and keeping that alive while at the same time creating something completely original. I, um, I'd never done an original film uh, musical before and I'd always wanted to. That was really important to me. Um, and so I thought, well, this is an opportunity to do that. And it took three years. You know, we started in 2015 writing it and it was really about the big idea um, about, uh, you know, when can the, when would this take place, you know, in terms of the story itself, what would the story be? And we came across the fact that the books, the first books were written in the 30s during the Depression era. And I thought, if our film could take place in that time period, that would make Michael and Jane, you know, in their mid-30s, having, you know, <laughs> because 1910 was when the first film was set... And I thought, well, that's an interesting story. What happened to Michael and Jane? And how are they dealing with, you know, finding the light in the darkness of the time of the great slump in London? And and that's when this it all sort of started from that. And I, and, and I found sort of our footing in a, in a new story to tell. Because this is something you had sort of thought about on your own earlier, but I, but I think you sort of had this respectful reticence to do it and then now once you sort of have that epiphany you figure out how do I tell a unique story while still paying tribute to the past and when I think about you know looking back um, I I, and you mentioned P.L. Travers I know that Travers herself was very tough on on Walt Disney Um, was there any additional pressure that you felt to sort of put yourself when I say in Walt's shoes, I mean in terms of, of meeting her standards and expectations. You know, and did, do you sort of imagine a little P.L. Travers, you know, leaning over your shoulder as you're trying to put this together? No, without question. I mean, you know, we all know she was famously very protective of her material, which she should be. Um, what's interesting is that her books have no narrative to them. They are episodic adventures. That's what they are. So what I really wanted to do was work through with John DeLuca and David McGee, and and then eventually Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman, wanted to work through all of the books, there are eight books, and look through all the material and cherry pick and find sequences or adventures that could be musicalized, that could become part of our storytelling, characters, etc., but at the same time, we had to create a completely original narrative to wrap around all those wonderful adventures. So this—that was the sort of the, the sort of the challenge of the whole thing. And um, but I did feel her presence, and I think it was very helpful that Emily Blunt, for instance, was playing Mary Poppins because we had to look to redefine the role, and we went directly to the books. It's such a great character in the books. It's so mysterious and enigmatic. You know, who is this woman? Why she's a you know so many different things. She's it's kind of stern and tough on the facade, but then underneath you see there's a childlike spirit there, and it was so rich a character to to sort of look into and 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 work from and work on. Um, and the the books were really the help for us. You know, people don't I don't think are aware that there were eight books and. Um, 
you know, the second book was Mary Poppins Comes Back, and then Mary Poppins Opens the Door, and there's, there, there's a wealth of material. And, and you beautifully, to your point about the narrative, create that emotional connection that brings all those little vignettes together. But I think for you, for the cast, for the songwriters, for the screenwriters, there are, because Mary Poppins is so beloved, dare I say revered, by multiple generations, there has to be an added sense of, of pressure in trying to make sure you connect to that film without trying to reproduce or remake it. Yeah, it was a balancing act the entire time. But I knew that I would use myself as a barometer because I am a lover of the first film. So, And because it means so much to me, I knew that I actually had to meet my highest bar. And I knew that there was a combination of things I had to accomplish, which was to pay respect to that first incredible film, but create this original story and have a reason for Mary Poppins to return. And so when I discovered this big idea of um, a story about loss, about loss of wonder and a loss of um, magic in, uh, in someone's life, um, which is compounded in this story by the fact that there is a family member that's passes away so there's that loss to deal with how do you recover how do you look and find the joy of life in every day and it felt so current to me to be working on a film like that because that's what I feel in a way we're in as a you know as 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 a culture um it's a it's a it's somewhat dark time I think right now and so we're all looking for a ray of hope and a ray of light and I wanted to send that message of hope out into the world and that's why I felt in a way it was time to come back to Mary Poppins and really examine you know her incredible message which is look through life look at life through a child's eyes and 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 don't let that spirit ever uh die yeah you talked about timing and that was something that when this was first announced there was that you know how do you take this perfect film it doesn't need a sequel but you know in terms of of timing you know, Mary comes into people's lives when they sort of need her most. And I think we could all use a little Mary Poppins sometimes. I think the, the to your point about the timing, I think that's why it, it is going to be that, that bright spot for a lot of people. And it is going to touch on a lot of emotional touch points yes. for both kids and adults. I agree. I think there's definitely a huge sense of nostalgia watching the film because I made it for not only children, but for those adults like myself who the movie meant so much to. And so we were very careful as we worked on it not to abuse that, not to you know, you know, know, keep referencing the first film, but find very specific moments throughout the film, you know, for instance, you know, Michael in the attic looking through things saying, why are we keeping this and picking up the snow globe from Feed the Birds or picking up the kite, which, you know, plays a huge part in the film. Um, You know, all of that was very strategic and placed um, because we knew we could use it in a very strong way when we needed to, Um, especially some of the strains of music. We actually waited for a lot of that till the very end of the film, like hearing Let's Go Fly a Kite or a bit of, you know, um, uh, Feed the Birds, you know, for instance, we were very careful. But I did feel there was more story to tell. And I really felt like, 
it deserved a sequel. I think there would have been a sequel if P.L. Travers had been a little bit more <laughs> open to it. And it just felt like this is the time we need it. I felt it was time for me to do it. I mean, it, it, it felt like everything felt right about this. Mm-hmm. And even though I knew a lot of people come and will come to the movie with their arms crossed and say, let me see, <laughs> I say just give it a moment and, and, let, and, and open up to what the possibilities of what this film can be because I think it's, it, it, it does have a special connection to people that know the first film. And they'll be uncrossing their arms like in the attic sequence to take out the tissues uh, as I and a lot of the people are because when I watched the first Mary Poppins over and over and over again on my VHS and Betamax tapes <laughs> there were lessons I took away as a kid and then as I watched as an, as an adult as a parent I get choked up there were different lessons I took away wow. as a parent and I felt the same here I tried to imagine watching it through a child's eyes. I can't wait to take my children to watch oh, them. But I felt those same sort of, especially in, in things like the attic scene. And sort of, you know, we keep sort of referencing the first film. One of the things that made it so wonderful was the hand-drawn animation sequences, which was something important that you wanted to bring back. How important was it to execute on the hand-drawn animation while keeping it modern while still having the sort of touch points to the past. I was so um, aware of the fact that there were certain things in the DNA of Mary Poppins that I wanted to hold on to. One of those is the animation sequence and live action together. I would, I know I personally, if I went to a sequel, would be incredibly disappointed if there wasn't something like that. And I wanted it to be hand-drawn, which I know is very complicated and was very complicated. One of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. But I also knew it was the right thing to do. And with that, um, with that sequence, for example, it was the first thing we shot um, because the animators needed that time. And it was over 14 months of work that they spent hand-drawing every frame of that piece. <laughs> and, you know, what was great was we were able to, in addition to you know, creating this animated world, this 2D animated world, we were able to use modern techniques um, with the camera work and how we moved through that that hand-drawn animation. So it's all the things that I know Walt would have done. I know in my heart because he was always interested in sort of, you know, pushing the envelope and, 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 and discovering what new techniques could be used. But I also, I, you know, I really wanted to hold on to some of those really important elements from the first film that needed to be part of this. Like, for instance, you know, with, uh, I wanted to do a big, huge, massive production number with, that was with men who were athletic and dancing and with Lin-Manuel's character leading that with Mary Poppins in it and the children. I, I wanted that you know, I, I'm a dancer. I started as a dancer, so I was so excited to launch into that number, which is called Trip a Little Light Fantastic. That was thrilling to do on that scale. Um, so something I really was excited to, you know, those are the, those are sort of the moments, the elements that I really wanted to hold on to. You mentioned Walt, and, and, and I think you sort of took a page out of Walt's recipe book and sort of finding all of those ingredients that from the cast to the screenwriters um, to obviously the music plays such an important part. Um, Just very quickly about the cast. um, Why was Emily Blunt the only choice for you? 
because of the demands of the role are so huge. I mean, you have to be able to be an actor that has a lot of sophistication that can play a many layers. The character on, you know, as the facade of the character is very strict and stern, but underneath that, there needs to be a beating heart, a real human quality under there. And humor, she has so much humor. She found so much humor in the character. And and also vulnerability. Um, and she needed to be able to sing, you know. So Emily Side worked with her on Into the Woods, and she sings beautifully and dance, which was a discovery for me on this, but I had no doubts. And, you know... She's British, too. I mean, it was sort of like the perfect alchemy of everything. Um, there was honestly no one else for this role. And I, I have to say that every single person, from Lin-Manuel Miranda to Meryl Streep, every single one of them was my first choice. Not even a question. I mean, Lynn has this incredible, unbridled enthusiasm, childlike spirit that was everything Jack needed to be. I mean, that was so thrilling to be able to get him to come off of Hamilton, his first project, and come to us and do this film. And I felt that way about Ben Wisha, Emily Mortimer, and not to mention Dick Van Dyke, because to have Dick Van Dyke as part of this film was a total dream come true for me. I mean, we all felt blessed by his presence. And the fact that he can still do what he does in this film and dance like that and with such joy and such a incredible twinkle in his eye I mean he is magic and he grabbed me I will say as I was walking onto the set the first time we were walking on the set together he said Rob I have to tell you something I feel the same spirit on this set that I did for on the first film and that was the greatest compliment of all I mean to have come full circle for me from this you know young <laughs> boy in Pittsburgh four years old having seen this film and there I am working with him and for him to say that it was, I mean, honestly, that was the dream come true right there. Yeah, and to capture that magic and, and get that endorsement from somebody who was there. And, and look, exactly. five plus decades later, Mary Poppins still holds up as, as a timeless classic. How, you know, sort of wrapping things up sure. full circle, how does the character Mary Poppins, um, you know, who was written in the 30s, the movie was in the 60s, how does she continue to sort of hold up today and, and how does you know your film help do that mm. i love her character because she's sort of no nonsense she she doesn't coddle children she doesn't play down to them she doesn't even teach them the way you normally sort of just lecture a child she lets that people discover she lays the groundwork and creates a master plan and then people find things on their own and i find that such a beautiful way to help and 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 she doesn't ask for anything in return she 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 does what she needs to do she brings a family together or helps heal them and then she's gone with and and it's it's selfless um to me and it's such a beautiful way to express empathy and i just felt like you know that character i think we all need mary poppins in our life today to remember you know that ray of light that she she brings in not a traditional way you know it's a very sort of obscure kind of way that she does it but when she does it she she magically um takes the everyday ordinary life and spins it into something magical and adventurous and wondrous and when you can do that to your you can if you can hold on to that and bring that into your everyday life 
that's what I hope people walk away from this film feeling that we can bring sort of a sense of wonder, a sense of joy, a sense of magic into our own everyday lives. And um, that's the great lesson of Mary Poppins. Well, thank you so much for being the chef in the kitchen that brought all these ingredients <laughs> together perfectly and you know, worthy of, of bearing the Mary Poppins name and being part of the Disney thank legacy. You. I appreciate that. I hope your family really enjoys it. I'm sure they will. Oh, good. Thank, thank you. you. Lovely to see you. You as well. Lovely to speak to you, too. Enjoy them very much. I also want to now share with you a conversation between Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman and Disney legend Richard M. Sherman, who, with his brother, wrote the, not practically, absolutely perfect music for the original Mary Poppins, among so many others. By the way, you can also listen to my interview with Richard on shows 80, 135, and his time with us on our WW Radio group cruise on the Disney Dream on show 300. So sit back, relax, pull up a chair, and let's join the conversation between Richard, Mark, and Scott. You know, it's a funny thing you use the word love because basically we fell in love with the book. We fell in love with Mary Poppins. Mm -hmm. And we adored her. And we wanted everything to be just so-so, just so right for her. And it was a great labor of love on our part. And you guys took over and did the same feel, that same love affair with this character and with what the magic of it all is. But we added someone to that love relationship that not only Mary Poppins in the books, but our love for you Aww. and the love for everyone who worked on the film. And we realized, people ask us a lot now, how did you have the, the chutzpah <laughs> to take on trying to write a sequel to this iconic, classic, perfect movie with the all-time greatest song score that has ever been written for a film? And we realized after a few weeks of total fear that this movie and this project would be our chance to almost speak for generations of people and that it was a great honor for us to with our songs with our music and lyrics to say thank you to you for the say, for the you know to share our love well you know that's a very <laughs> beautiful thing but i feel i've always wanted to say thank you to Lerner and Lowe and thank you to Rogers and Hart and thank you to all these wonderful geniuses who wrote such great music that inspired me. Yes. And so it's a very wonderful feeling to know that I've inspired some Oh my God, yes. And we're, so and many. We're, in your, we're in your church now. I know. <laughs> God gives us a, a talent, you know. Some yeah. people have it, some people don't. And uh, you're given a talent. You don't take any bows for a talent. That's something that's been given. Right. Yeah. But what you do with it, that you can take a bow with. And I feel that the greatest honor to me is the fact that younger people like yourselves are inspired by what Bob and I did. And I, it makes me feel very good because uh, all we did was, it was just, we were paying homage to our predecessors as well. We right. just were very grateful that we were in the same business. Yes. I, of course, want to ask you this, what everyone always asks us, is, is your process of songwriting. Did you write here in the, on Mary on the Poppins, lot? here on the lot? Did you write, write or were you lot? at home? Um, let's see. Well, a lot of Mary Poppins was written here, but we started it before we were under contract to Walt Disney. We were just given a book, read this and tell me what you think. And they would say, it's Mary Poppins by Pamela Travers. We never heard of, of any of it. And so we said, God, this, so we're reading these things and these stories are popping out at us. And he said, there's no storyline, but by God, there's a lot of wonderful little episodes here. And what it needs is a story. So when we came in to speak to Walt after he'd given us this, Look, we said, 
You know, this is a great series of episodes in search of a story. But if you have a story, we can do something with this. So he said to us, what do you think? We said, well, we think it should be something in the family. Maybe the problem with the father. He doesn't pay any attention or something. We just sort of were uh, playing around with that. And he says, how'd you like to come to work here? Because he liked our ideas. So he put us on staff. And then, now our first assignment was develop something for Mary Poppins. And so along with all the other assignments, songwriting-wise, which, which was fun to do, we were developing a storyline for Mary Poppins. Because uh -huh. if you read the books, which I'm sure you yeah. have, there's no storyline. Right. It's strictly a wonderful series of episodes. Uh -huh. So I, I think that was it. We, we developed a storyline for Mary Poppins. That gave us the, the chance to write songs for it. When people ask us about writing songs, it's always true that we say the idea has to come first. Yeah. That's the hard part. You could sit there for days. And then once you have that idea, there's just a toboggan ride of the words start coming out. We, and so is that what was it like? Precisely. Uh, I love that a toboggan ride. It was really, once you have the, that key, that wonderful thing, that need, and we, we had the storyline. Once we had a storyline, it was just popping out, just popping out all the time, coming. Poppins out? <laughs> Poppins, Poppins out. out. Did you write at the piano together? <laughs> uh, I would sit at the piano and yeah. throw lines back and forth. Uh -huh. That's and kind of how we do it. Yeah, do yeah, yeah. Say, how about something like this? Says, yeah, that's good. Go on, boy. Okay. <laughs> you know, it, but it was a very shared collaboration, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Bob and I should think like one person. We finish each other's sentences. Yeah. You know, I guess, it, it, once again, it's a ballad. It's the song that she sings to the children, the place where lost things go. Because it's yes. to find a way for her to sing to small children and not about depress lost. them further yeah. about the, they're yeah. missing their mother. But there and, was a beautiful chapter in one of the other these sequential books where Mary's uncle is the man in the moon. And then um, on the other side of the moon is where all the things we're missing live. So it, was one, so it seemed to, oh, that's so perfect. Ways to, yeah. Where lost things go seemed like a good way to describe yeah, So we lost. weren't musicalizing that trip to the moon. But the idea of a place where lost things go, that's, that wasn't the expression in the book. But that was like our... Our yeah. idea. <laughs> like, wait, the place where lost things is. That sounds like a Mary Poppins oh, Disney yeah, song. That. And it's a great way to softly talk about that. And she really yeah. doesn't yeah. talk about their mother until the last verse where, you know, where they've, you know, they've gotten it. But of course, to, you know, to write a song for Mary Poppins to sing to children in bed. It's, it's rather hard <laughs> to know what's come before. Not only Feed the Birds, but one of my, my not guilty pleasures is Stay Awake, one of the most greatest <laughs> yeah. songs ever. Every, every opposite, every opposite. Yes. Because kids love to go the The beginning opposite. of reverse, yeah. reverse psychology. psychology. I mean, we do that with Can You Imagine That, where she says, how could you dare to have fun? It's you the worst that. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> no, but that, that was fun. We, we knew right away what we were going to do. Yeah. our Walt Disney World Trivia Question of the Week, where I invite you to test your knowledge of Walt Disney World history or see how well you pay attention to the details, sometimes know what you see or hear or eat. And if you think you know the answer, you can enter via our online form for a chance to win a Disney prize package. 
Of course, before we get to this week's question, we're going to go back, review last week's, and select our winner. So last week, I asked you to name three restaurants, because I'm hungry, I'm always hungry, that overlook an in-park attraction in Walt Disney World. So I was looking for a restaurant in the parks that have a viewing area or overlook into an attraction. So nothing in Disney Springs, nothing in a, uh, a Disney Resort Hotel. And the three restaurants I was looking for were La Cantina de San Angel in Epcot's Mexico Pavilion, which obviously look, overlooks the Grand Fiesta Tour starring the Three Caballeros, Garden Grill in Epcot's Future World, which overlooks Living with the Land. I almost called it Listen to Land. And the Pinocchio Village House in Fantasyland, which obviously overlooks It's a Small World. Now, I also would have taken the Coral Reef Restaurant in Epcot because technically you can see into the tank, which is part of the pavilion and the attraction. So I accepted that one. And a few of you threw in as some wild cards, Cinderella's Royal Table, because it overlooks almost all of the Fantasyland attractions. Not where I was going, but I dig the creativity and stating your case. So I took that one as well. Anyway, I took all of the correct or correct-ish answers, randomly selected one. Again, you were playing for digital copies of all my products, including my 102 Ways to Save Money for an At Walt Disney World book, all seven of my virtual audio walking tours of the Magic Kingdom secrets and history and overlooked experiences, all of which, by the way, still just $10 on the WW Radio shop or on iTunes and Amazon. I'm also going to send you a WW Radio vinyl sticker, a pop socket, and a t-shirt. And last week's winner, randomly selected, is... Jeff Homan. So Jeff, congratulations. You use the online form, so I have your mailing address. I will get your prize package out to you right away. If you played last week and didn't win, that's okay, because here's your next chance to enter in this week's Walt Disney World Trivia Challenge. So of course we need to stay with the Mary Poppins theme, but this time in Walt Disney World, because your question this week is to tell me, in which Walt Disney World resort can you find a fountain and bronze statues of characters from the original Mary Poppins film. It's that simple. You have until Sunday, December 23rd at 11.59 p.m. to go to www.radio.com, click on this week's podcast, use the form there, and this week, you're not just going to play for the digital products, the stickers, and the pop socket, but I'm also going to send you a very special Mary Poppins Returns prize package that includes not just a Mary Poppins Return backpack, but a set of Mary Poppins Returns holiday ornaments, which is a limited edition of only, I think, 3,000. So I have that still sealed, ready to go. You can get all the products, the stickers, the pop socket, and the Mary Poppins prize package. So good luck. No, wait, I I just thought of something. But wait, there's more. You're not only going to get the backpack, the ornaments, the digital products, the pop socket, but since we're talking about Mary Poppins and Richard Sherman, I'm also going to send you a hand-signed photo of Richard Sherman by Richard Sherman. So you get the ultimate sort of Mary Poppins prize package. So good luck and have fun. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so very much for taking the time to tune in this and every week. If and when you see Mary Poppins Returns, I'd love to know what you think of the film. Go to www.radio.com slash community. That will take you to our Facebook group. Would love to have the conversation continue there. Not just about this week's show or anything on the podcast, but come by, introduce yourself, and talk about all things Disney, parks, resorts, food, movies, whatever it might be. 
and food. I also want to thank, I'm clearly starving as I always am. I also want to thank some of the new and longtime members of the WW Radio Nation family. I appreciate you so very much for the love and the support and the friendship and the help that you give. And I love being able to thank you and give back to you each and every month. And if you want to find out more about the WW Radio Nation, go to www.radionation.com. But I first want to thank some of the new members, including Jeremy Goff, Anthony Horath, Rob James, Alexa Kaczynski, Nicole Harnois, Nathan Gray, Greg Mack, Bill Swan, and Carmine Valentino. I sincerely appreciate you and welcome you to the family. And if you want to find out not only how you can help support the show, which is what the nation does in part, but also how you can get exclusive rewards every month, including scavenger hunts from the parks and cruise line and Disneyland, we have access to our private Facebook group, custom magic band covers, logo gear, t-shirts, backpacks, monthly care packages from Walt Disney World and lots more. You also have access to our exclusive live monthly video group calls as well as early access to tickets to special events. Again, to find out more, go to www.radionation.com and don't forget that a portion of the proceeds from your contribution does go to our Dream Team project and benefits the Make-A-Wish Foundation of America. And I would love for you to be more than just a, a, a listener and a consumer. I'd love to hear from you, talk to you, interact with you. Again, the Facebook group is one of the best ways, but you can also connect with me on social. I am at Lou Mangiello on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, and Pinterest. If you have a question you want me to answer on the show on a future episode or listener email segment, you can email me, lou at www.radio.com. And if you want to be heard on the air, share your thoughts about this episode, a past episode, a question or a comment, or just a hello from the parks, you can call the voicemail at 407-900-9391. That's 407-900-WW1. And of course, as much as I love connecting with you online, I still believe that nothing beats a handshake and a hug. Thanks again to everybody who came to our December meet of the month over at Min and Bill's Dockside Diner and Disney's Hollywood Studios. Our next meet of the month is over J- Marathon Weekend at Saturday, January 12th at the Tomorrowland, I still call it the Noodle Station, Tomorrowland Terrace, the place in Tomorrowland on the corner in between Tomorrowland and Main Street USA. The meet will most likely be our normal time at 1.30, but go to the events page at www.radio.com slash community to find out more RSVP. It's free, open to everyone. Come by yourself, bring the whole family. Kids are always, and of course, very, very welcome. Also, while you're there, find out about other upcoming group events, including our WW Radio Adventures by Disney to Japan coming up next October. We only have two spots left for that exclusive trip. We also have our cruise out of New Orleans in February 2019. And stay tuned for more events and announcements coming up very, very soon. Speaking of Marathon Weekend, let me know if you're going to be there. We will be out there cheering on the WW Radio running team. You are welcome to not only join the team, whether you walk, run, walk, jog, 5K, 10K, half full, or dopey, or if you just want to come out and be part of the team as part of the cheer squad, go to www.radio.com slash running. Also stay tuned. I'll be announcing some other meetups on the road as I travel to speak. And speaking of speaking, if I can come to speak to your business, to your conference, your event, to your school, in person or virtually, go to lumangelo.com. There you'll also find out ways that I could maybe help you turn what you love into what you do and maybe your passion into your profession with one-on-one coaching. I'll be launching a new uh, small group mastermind after the first of the year. And don't forget that my Momentum Weekend Workshop is this September 28th, 29th 
in Walt Disney World. Again, visit LouMangelo.com to find out more. I want to thank, as always, my partner, my sponsor, and my friend, Becky Mankin from MEI and Mouse Fan Travel. They are my official, my recommended travel provider. It's who I recommend to you because it's who I trust and it's who I use. Whether you're going to Worldland, Adventures by Disney Cruise, or anywhere on this beautiful planet Earth, you can visit them over at mousefantravel.com. Thanks, as always, to Timmy Foster from Celebrations Magazine. You can go order back issues and subscribe over at celebrationspress.com. And as always, my friend, and you are my friend, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart, if you like the show, all I ask in return is that you please help spread the word. Let others know about it. Tell your friends that you're listening by tweeting out a link to this or your favorite episode. Share it over on Facebook. That's super helpful. And if you could take just 30 seconds, if that, to rate and review the show over on iTunes, it's incredibly helpful. Thanks to you. We have almost 2,000 five-star reviews. I want to thank some recent reviewers like Karen SG, who says... It's bringing the magic wherever you may be. My family and I have been listening to WW Radio podcasts for several years. Lou Mangiello has so much knowledge about Disney, but as important, his podcasts are interesting, compelling, and fun. From trivia to top 10 and all sorts of reviews, Lou's podcasts make you feel like you're listening to a friend, because you are. His Facebook page carries through that spirit of community as well. This is by far my favorite Disney podcast I've ever listened to, and the only one I now listen to regularly Abba Zaba, oh, it's the best name ever, says, it's one of my favorite hours-ish every week. I eagerly await the notification to pop up that Lou has uploaded a new podcast. I've been listening for about six years now. Wow, thank you. I love your passion for food, Lou, as do I. Thank you. And it's also one of my favorite things about visiting Disney. We just bonded. Given how expensive everything is now, it's important to have accurate expectations when heading into a restaurant, and Lou never disappoints in providing a food lover's view of dining at Disney. Thanks for providing a little bit of Disney magic for us every week. G D U C Wow. G D C H G D U A C H D says five stars, man. It is absolutely the best podcast out there, Disney or otherwise. I can't say enough about the content, quality, and the expertise from the interviews to the top tens and all the reviews. It's crazy how much good information is in here. We happened to be at Epcot during a recent trip and stopped by the meetup. In September, and Lou is as nice and gracious as he comes off on the podcast. It's true. When he threw us a Go Bills, I knew we had to finally write the long overdue review I'd been meaning to write for months. Thanks, Lou, for the awesome podcast and all that you do. It's been life-changing. Wow. Thank you, GD. We might not work on that screen name a little bit. And MJS863 says, Lou, with multiple exclamation points, if you love Disney, you love Lou. He brings Walt Disney World to life with his fun and entertaining podcast. It is just like being there. MS, MJS863, GD, Abazaba, and Abazaba, you set the bar so high for screen names. And Karen SG, thanks to you and all of you who have left a review in iTunes or at just anywhere. Again, just search for WW Radio in iTunes or go to www.radio.com slash iTunes and I'll show you exactly where and how to leave the review. And I will leave you with one of, and there are many, and you'll know when you see it, favorite quotes from Mary Poppins. Actually, there's there's two. And, and the balloon lady, this is not a spoiler, at one point says to Michael that you've forgotten what it's like to be a child. And I think... That's one of the things that Disney and hopefully this show and, and what we do is something that we never forget in the importance of, of being a kid and thinking like a kid and, and loving life and enjoying 
things and, and people and experiences with that wide-eyed, wide-smiled, childlike innocence that sometimes we lose, much like the Banks, when they grow up. And then at one point, another time in the film, Annabelle Banks says, everything is possible, and Mary Poppins, being Mary Poppins, says, even the impossible. The impossible is possible. If I could ever help your impossible become possible, reach out to me. Let me know how I can help. I hope that you have a truly, practically perfect week. So until next time, thank you. See ya. Hi, Lou. This is Jackie calling from Minneapolis, Minnesota. I just wanted to call in to say thank you so much for all of your encouraging words. I've been listening for about a year and a half and for about the same amount of time I've been trying to get a new job and I've just been listening to your podcast and really hearing the words keep moving forward and, you know, keep trying to reach your dreams and I know that that's something that you live by and that's something that Walt lives by and I'm happy to say that this week I was finally offered my dream job um, and I'm super excited about it, and I just wanted to call in to say thank you since you've been such an inspiration to me for the past um, year and a half since I've been listening. Um, So thank you so much, and I am very excited to hear next week's podcast. Bye, Lou. Hey, Lou. It's Christine Morrison from Flowertown, PA. Monday morning in Pennsylvania. A lovely 23 degrees out getting the kids ready for school. I had to call and say that I listened to your Raglan Road review, and I'm very jealous. Loved that place. We went there in um, two Julys ago now for lunch, so it wasn't really in the height of the entertainment, but I loved walking around and looking at at that place. It was beautiful. Uh, My brother went for a food and wine festival for four days with his wife and another couple, an adult-only trip. And three out of their four nights there, uh, they went to Raglan Road. They loved it that much. They kept going back. So it was a really awesome spot. Thanks for doing that review. The food sounds amazing. Uh, we had a great, great, great time. So have a wonderful week, everybody. It's early Monday morning. Make somebody smile. Take care. Bye-bye. Hello, Luna. Charlie Maggie from West Seneca, New York, calling in to say I am 50 days away to go back to my happy place, Walt Disney World. And you are, oh my goodness, going to have a meetup on January 12th. I know you guys were just meeting up yesterday. And, um, the parks again and you guys look like you had a wonderful time. I wish I was there. So look at the events page for where the meetup's gonna be in Magic Kingdom. And then next year you have the Adventures by Disney Cruise with another cruise from New Orleans. And what is that? February? Yikes. Everything's coming up so fast. So I hope you guys all have a magical week and stay positive. Love and hugs.